What if I treat myself as a product? How do users choose the right product that matches for them? And can I apply the same frameworks that I preach to every single business that I talk to, to myself? And one of the biggest things that you think when you have a newer customer and you're choosing a product is to lower the friction to understand the value better. So how do you lower the friction? Well, you create trials or you create freemium experiences to increase the perceived value so you can have a better match in value proposition, both from customer that's solving the problem, as well as the company that is providing the solution. And hopefully there's a monetization handshake that can happen, but it can happen in a lot more uh, informed environment from both parties. Hey everyone, and welcome to For the Love of Product, brought to you by the Product-Led Alliance. I'll be your host, Tiana Hanson-Drury, Chief Product Officer at Mina Technologies and all-around passionate product aficionado. Each episode, we'll be looking at the head and the heart behind product-led growth, the passion and the practice of product, and we'll be picking the brains of seasoned CPOs and heads of products, as well as visionary founders and investors getting their inside stories. Enjoy! Hello, and welcome to another episode of For the Love of Product. I am thrilled to have with us today, Elena. Um, and Elena Verna is a PLG advisor. She is an interim growth executive. She is a program creator for Reforge, and she's many other things. Um, in her career, she's worked with Miro, SurveyMonkey, Amplitude, Clockwise, Crust, which I just learned about today. We'll talk about that. Uh, MongoDB, and many more. And she focuses on PLG B2B growth models for scaling companies. She also has one of my favorite LinkedIn accounts um, because she brings lots of humorous observations. So if you don't follow her there, I think you should. Uh, Alina, welcome to the pod. Where are you dialing in from? Hi, thank you for having me. I'm dialing in from Nashville, Tennessee. Amazing, amazing. We spoke earlier about my love for Nashville, uh, East Nashville in particular. Uh, how long have you been uh, been in, in, in Nashville? I uh, exited California just a little bit over a year and a half ago. I lived in California for over 22 years, um, and I really love it here. It's a really great change of pace, and being in the music capital of the United States is pretty incredible because anybody who's ever touring and doing concerts, they always stop at Nashville. So the buffet of music to choose from and see artists perform live is absolutely incredible here. Yes, I know. I've been many times and enjoyed it. And I have to say, actually, one of my favorite things, and then we'll actually talk about product, is uh, but is the Grand Ole Opry. I love the fact that that place has so much history, and there's been so many different diverse artists who have come there over the years. What a what a cool place that you get to live with all that amazing music and good food, I would say. Wow. Yes. Yes, indeed. I can't complain. Can't complain. <laughs> all right. Cool. So, Alina, we are excited to have you here today. Um, you are known, as I said, for kind of your PLG observations. Anyone who follows you knows you talk a lot about the relationship between PLG motions and sales motions and growth motions. And we will certainly talk about those things today. But actually, we're going to spend a little bit more time speaking about Elena, uh, yourself, and your own career journey, because I think you're quite an inspiration for people who are maybe just looking at their careers and they're plotting out how they want to live their life, how they want to spend their time working. Um, and maybe the traditional nine to five or full time role doesn't necessarily look exactly like what 
they get a lot of joy from or are super excited about. Um, because you have actually kind of plotted a career that looks different than many people. So that's what we're going to talk about today. And I'm really excited for you to, to share a bit about your journey. Um, let's start with what you are today, right? Uh, what's your LinkedIn uh, job title that you say? How, how did you come up with that? <laughs> My LinkedIn job title is growth hobbyist. Uh, a little ambiguous, uh, but that is uh, the purpose because um, I figured that I don't want to be defined and just do normal, traditional, full-time roles. And I really want to focus on work being my hobby. And if I want it to be a hobby, I also need to figure out the best way not only to continue learning, to augment my skills and to know everything I want to know about PLG and how to drive growth in uh, B2B businesses and all of the best frameworks and patterns. But at the same time, I want to monetize my hobby in the best possible way as well to enable the most learning and the most happiness for myself. So uh, I left it super ambiguous as well, specifically, so I can do whatever I want um, and continuously expand and diversify the ways that I can monetize my career. Yeah, I love that. And we're going to get into that whole concept of monetizing and how you think about yourself and projecting your availability to the world. But maybe let's take a step back to kind of the impetus for this. Um, and we talked about how a lot of this came from a realization that the interview process, uh, it wasn't working. Um, and it, you did something about it, right? You you reflected on this and you did something about it. So take us through your journey and help us connect that to growth hobby, uh, a hobbyist and what that means. I grew up at SurveyMonkey. I started there as an entry-level data analyst. Seven and a half years later, I exited as SVP of growth, running their product growth, growth marketing, and analytics teams. And that was an incredible ride. But it was time to move on. And when it was time to move on, I also had to interview on the level that I'd never interviewed at before. Last time I interviewed was at an individual contributor entry level. And all of a sudden, I have to figure out how to interview as an SVP, as an executive, as a leader. I followed patterns that I thought I used when I chose SurveyMonkey, which was inspiring story, great team, and just find a problem that I think I can go and fix. And this is how I chose my next company. And my objective was to stay a really long time with the business. One of the best things that I've had about SurveyMonkey tenure is how long I've been there to actually progress with the company, to see it iterate and go through multiple growth curves and learn from that. So I was really optimizing on retention. So how can I find a job where I can stay for the next seven years? I didn't want to jump around and I didn't want to just like be that two years, two years of the company and continuously moving on. But then I chose my next position and I only lasted for two years in it. And it was the biggest disappointment to me because that's not what I was looking for. Yet that's what I got. Why did I last only two years in it? Well, it was the wrong industry. I picked just not the right industry for myself of where I could gain most learnings. It was um, not the right strategy that I wanted to go and implement. 
it was great team, but team was not enough. There's so much more about mission and vision about the company and your learning opportunities. And I didn't have a good match. So as a result, I had to figure out how do I actually pick the next job that I can stay for a really long time at. And to me, the biggest realization came that I don't know how to do it. And anybody I asked of how do you interview and how do you pick the next opportunity never provided me any really good answers except for, well, reverse interview, ask them a lot of questions. I'm like, but they, but they, why? No knows answers. They sell me this picture of rainbows and unicorns and butterflies and everything is fantastic. Nobody's talking about real problems because they're afraid to spook me. I'm also not really positioned to talk about my downfalls because I'm positioned in the, I, in the spot where I should sell myself because I should try to get that offer. So it's like both parties are lying to each other. And on the leadership level, the consequences are very big of making the wrong choice. And all of the accountability of that wrong choice falls on a candidate, not on the company. For a company, you're just a blip in their history. Whether you are a right blip, a good blip, or a bad blip, doesn't really matter. They will never have to explain why they hired you and why you worked or did not work out. However, as a candidate, the choice of the company defined my career. I will forever have to explain why I chose that company and especially why it didn't work out and what am I going to do differently about it. So with all of the risk falling on my shoulders of making wrong choice potentially, and also me not even knowing how to make the right choice because I don't have lots of data points to pattern match of how to make this decision correctly, it really left me feeling that I don't know how to pick my next opportunity in order for it to be successful. And whether I have a lot of them in front of me or not, um, it was really even relevant because I didn't know how to vet them out. Okay. So these are experiences that I think are very translatable. I think a lot of people feel, I mean, first, like anyone who's gone through a massive rise in one job, right? So your example of starting as a you know data analyst and then coming out as SVP, that's very recognizable for people who spend a long time at a career. Also, the challenges of effective interviewing, right? Like really being able to talk about limitations, challenges, problems that exist. Like, I think you're right. There's a lot of blinding spots on that. Um, but talk to us about what you decided to do because of that. Right. Like, how does this transform into you making a choice that you're going to uh, craft a different path? So, first of all, I did interview a lot. And after I was interviewing a lot, I just found myself being even more confused after every single interview. Every opportunity looked shiny and exciting. I didn't know any downfalls of any job. I was trying to pattern match of how I saw the best people in the space and how they've built their careers. And it seemed mostly luck or very heavy networking and branding that landed them in the right opportunity where they actually had an ability to change something. So I'm like, I don't have data points. Nobody has data points to interview correctly. I mean, at most, how many positions has anybody held? Maybe three, four, five, uh, six. That's not enough data points to create a pattern of how to choose the right company. 
So having said that, how do you pick that rocket ship that then will define you? Because picking a rocket ship is also very important. And rocket ship doesn't necessarily even have to mean from company's performance. It can mean from your learning capacity of how much you're able to extract out of that opportunity. So how do you pick one? I had no idea. And the more and more I interviewed, the more and more confused I got, which had me step back and say, okay, what if I treat myself as a product? How do users choose the right product that matches for them? And can I apply the same frameworks that I preach to every single business that I talk to, to myself? And one of the biggest things that you think when you have a newer customer and you're choosing a product is to lower the friction to understand the value better. So how do you lower the friction? Well, you create trials or you create freemium experiences to increase the perceived value so you can have a better match in value proposition, both from customer that's solving the problem, as well as the company that is providing the solution. And hopefully there's a monetization handshake that can happen, but it can happen in a lot more uh, informed environment from both parties versus having more of a sales-led model, let's say, where you just try to sell, 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 and then you have utilization issues or retention issues because you oversold. And interview process is really like a sales-led model where candidate is a product because they're oversell it. And then do you have utilization and retention problems? So I went into thinking, how can I do more of a try before you buy experience with the companies? And the first time I went into advising, it was with the clear objective to lower the friction of monetization with me and the company and do the trial between the two of us where I can understand what they're actually looking to solve. I can understand the problems. I can understand whether my skill set is a good match for their problem. And then hopefully that would materialize into a full-time employment opportunity. So to me, advising was really a tactical step to stop relying on the interview process. That was like a double-blind exper experiment on both sides and go into more of the value match with the company and understand whether I'm a good fit for them, both from my side and from their side at the same time. I love it. So let's talk a little bit about that process. And um, when you look at your resume or when you look at your LinkedIn, it looks like you, your first advisor uh, role that you chose was GoFundMe and then Bonusly. And then it looks like you maybe went in and did more of a full-time stint again at Malwarebytes. I can't tell if that's right or not. And then it looks like after that, you kind of, with the interim CMO role at Miro, then it seems like you went all in on advisorship. So like the story that tells me is like, you were kind of putting your toe in the water, taking it back, trying to decide. Is that true? Like, was there kind of a, um, a little bit of like finding that the advisory process and the advisory role was what really worked best for you? Talk to us about that. Cause I think people will benefit from learning how you learned that this was the right thing for you to do. I want to say first that doing advising versus starting as a full-time contract was terrifying. I was all set on my own. I didn't have the safety blanket of I'm in a full-time, full-benefits employment relationship with my uh, with with the company. 
I have to find clients because one advising role is not going to pay all of my bills. Um, and I have family, I have two children, I have to provide. Uh, so I was so stressed about it. I had lots of sleepless nights and I was terrified that I'm doing the wrong thing for two reasons. Reason number one, I thought that I might be sending the wrong signal to the market that will make me unemployable. Like, oh, now she's a contractor. Now we're not going to be interested in her as a full-time. So I was terrified about what it's going to do to my market perception. And then number two, I was terrified of not having that safety blanket because I grew up with that safety blanket. Uh, to me, the concept of a career is tied to having a full-time role. That's what it was painted for me throughout my entire journey, professional journey. So to step outside of that norm and to say, I'm not really starting my own company, but I kind of am because now I'm trying to monetize my brain in a very different way. And I don't have an employer per se. I have a client, so I have customers. Uh, and going that path was uh, very uncomfortable. And a lot of time and a lot of reasons of why it was uncomfortable is because there was not a lot of success points that I could look up to and say, hey, a lot of people are doing it and this is normal. So it felt like I was doing more of an outlier experience. What pushed me over the edge was actually a conversation that I had with Casey Winters. I cornered him to have lunch with me and he was already doing advising as a full-time um, position. So, and he's the only one that I've ever seen do this successfully. So I asked him how it works and he gave me a couple of tips on how he gets the clients, how he structures the contracts, um, what kind of conversations and problems that he actually solves for clients. And I thought, okay, I can do this. I can at least try it. And I gave myself timeline too. I said, I'm going to do this for three months, no more than three months, because I want to see if it works or not. That's why I'm going to be, that's going to be an experiment of my career. And then I'll go back to full-time because I want to go back to the safety zone where I feel comfortable, where I know how to operate and what I've done in the past. Um, so I closed my first, um, contract, um, very, uh, sporadically because they actually reached out to me for a full-time position. And I said, mm, I am available for full-time positions, but I really want to try advising first. And I want to see whether we have a really good skill match between um, each other and we can go from there. And that was my GoFundMe and Bonusly, uh, my first contracts. And um, by the way, it turned out that I was not a good skill match for either of those companies. And I'm so grateful that I did, didn't just jump over the cliff and join those companies because they're fantastic businesses on the outside, but I was just not the right person to help them grow. And that's okay. I have other matches that I have um, in the industry, but I turned their full-time recruitment outreaches into an advising offer that they took me up on. I learned a ton because both of those agreements actually lasted very short period of time. So I also understood what I need to be looking for a lot better. I also then had two data points in the past, serving Monty and Malwarebytes. Malwarebytes was my second position. And now I, had, I doubled my data points in two months. And that was fascinating to me. I'm like, okay, data insights are coming in a lot faster. So that made me want to actually strike an agreement that was successful. And I extended my experimentation timeline to over three months and said, let me find an agreement that actually can last a while and where I can be successful because 
if I cannot even find the right advising match, how will I ever find the right full-time match? I need more experiments and I need more data points. Okay. And so then what was that next step? So that next step was trying to sign more clients. This is where I signed Miro. Um, I signed uh, MongoDB and uh, some of the others. The piece that I really realized of the difference between advising and full-time, advising is really a contracting role where you're playing a coach. You're not a player anymore. You're a coach um, and you're helping a company with additional uh, patterns and data points from your previous experience. Plus, it's really helpful to have somebody look at your strategy and look at what you're doing from the outside that is not uh, caught up in all of the details of what's going on internally and politics and just give you straight up opinion. And I was all about that. I'm like, I have opinions all, all, all around. So polit politics aside, like this was a really fantastic way for me to work um, with businesses. But there was something that was missing. And what was missing was the crushing weight of accountability that I loved as an operator, to be a player, to actually be able to go and do something. Because I found myself in a situation, so I would be called on an advising call, and I'm like, I know what you need to do. I've seen it a million times. Go do this. And they would say, uh, no. Like, like you need to go and do this. And that lack of accountability of actually taking it to the next level um, is something that I found that was missing. I was also at that time really worried about losing operational relevance. I never wanted to be an advisor that was very hypothetical. I practice my advising is very involved. I meet with clients every single week. Um, I help them operationalize frameworks. I don't just sell frameworks. I help operationalize them. So I was worried about uh, staying too long out of operator role uh, and what that would do both to my knowledge um, as well as to my marketability uh, as an advisor. Uh, and at that point, um, I was still looking at full-time roles when Miro came in and they said that they needed an interim CMO. Or I'm like, I'm not really a CMO. If anything, I'm closer to CPO because I've done product work more so than marketing work, but I've done growth marketing. And they're like, we need growth marketing help. I'm like, all right, Nero, I love you, but you're my, one of my favorite products. Uh, let's go after it. And because they were already an advising client of mine, I knew the team very well. I knew their problems. I was already involved in it. So onboarding was a like super fast because I, I started and I was become became effective right away. And as an interim, there's a couple of different things that I've learned too that I never knew. There's full-time roles, which are traditional. Everybody knows about full-time roles. There's fractional roles that are more of a part-time executive. And then there's an interim role, which is um, a short-time executive. So you act as a full-time, but you're only there for six months to a year and you transition it to somebody that is more at full-time. And they weren't looking for exactly that. They were hiring for CMO, but they needed for somebody to step in. And the biggest problem that they had at the time was uh, growth marketing. And that was a perfect person for them to go in and, and take it on. That was an incredible learning experience, but it was also very turbulent time for me. Because I'm like, do I want to be full-time? Nero's so amazing. I want to be here. Or do I want to stay as an interim and an advisor? Do I miss this? Do I want to go back to full-time? Or do I want to go back to advising? And I 
swapped way too many times on them. At the beginning, they were asking me to join to full time. And I'm like, no, I don't want to. Then I'm like, maybe I want to. And they're like, well, we're already hiring. So like we constantly had this conversation with CEO at Nero where like, I could not make up my mind. And she's like, if you cannot make up your mind, I'm just going to go hire CMO. And um, at one point I felt very sad that I missed that opportunity when my interim contract was over because it felt like it was a full-time opportunity that I should have went on. But then three months later, after I went back to my advising and my lifestyle normalized, that wasn't working 60 to 80 hours a week anymore. And I was again seeing all of those pattern matches that I was doing with my advising clients. It was really a blessing in disguise um, that I didn't join them full time. And I went back into my uh, interim advising uh, career and I've never approached uh, full time positions since. Um, so it's been a very hard line for me because even though it feels lucrative and it feels familiar, it's not what is best for me at this point in my career that generates my North Star metric, which is insights per minute that I can learn from the market. And full-time role is just not it. And it's advertised to be, especially on leadership level. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I was about to ask you a question and then you literally answered it for me, which was how, like, what did you have a framework that allowed you to stay strong? It may have felt like waffling at the time, but actually it ended up being staying strong to what you needed. And I guess it's your North Star metric of insights per minute. You you knew that if you stayed full time uh, in Miro, you weren't going to be getting that same uh, up leveling and growth that you would get across the diversity of the advising that you would do. Is that right? Exactly. Exactly. It's 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 similar to getting all of your data points out of singular company versus getting all of your data points across different companies where you can create frameworks and patterns a lot faster and better. And you no longer have questions of whether uh, this data point is a trend or is just an outlier because I treat my advising clients as the multivariate test that I'm running of initiatives across multiple companies within very similar industry. And that helps me understand whether what they're doing and what I'm preaching and what I'm talking about is an actual framework that is scalable or it's a data point because there's too many successes there that are just a singular data point that are not replicatable and those are not interesting to me. They're fascinating to see once, but they're not replicatable. It's not sustainable. I'm not really interested in it. And I'm really on the hunt for that predictability, which uh, advising allowed me to have. But I really, that was not a very clear decision for me at the time. I really want to thank CEO of Nero, Andre, who helped me kind of push me out almost, even though it felt wrong. And he did the right thing for the company and he did the right thing for me and my career at the same time. So you started to talk a little bit about uh, what you go for when you pick companies, right? You're saying you want to be able to have enough similarity in the type of company and the type of work that you're doing that you can look for trends across them. What else goes into you picking the companies? I, I know you've spoken before about you do very specific type of advising. You will turn down jobs that doesn't meet those needs. Um, but beyond that, like, what are you looking for in terms of a company? What's something that you know, is it about culture? Is it about the people that you work with? Is it about problem spaces? Like you've got a very diverse set of companies that you advise. Um, so I'm curious, how do you go about choosing who you're going to allow to engage in your uh, pricing menu? 
I have three high-level parameters and then a couple tactical um, decisions that I make for myself specifically. On the high-level parameters, uh, there are company mission and vision. I have to believe in what they're doing. Hopefully, I'm also their customer. I heavily optimize for companies that I'm also their target customer because that just makes my growth work easy. Like I'm trying to grow usage on myself and, and that's very easy to relate to. Uh, that's not changeable by me. So it's either yes or a no. And it's something that is very easily, to, very easy to make up your mind early on. The second one is people because, um, in order to make business grow, you have to work with other people. So you have to relate to them. You have to be able to be productive with them, efficient, effective with them. And uh, this, I don't decide through regular interview process. I actually hold workshop with every single company that I engage with. Uh, that workshop is an hour and a half of where we're actively solving a problem together, where I'm interacting with them in the pseudo work environment. And we can see how we're connect. We can see each other's synergy and how effective we are with each other. So I forego entire interview one-on-one process and we only do a group workshop to see how we are able to communicate with each other. And then the third parameter is my learning capacity. Every single product and every single company that I pick to work with has a very specific reason of what I want to learn from them. They think they're learning from me. I actually heavily optimize what I can learn from them because it has to be a two-way exchange. It's not just my brain dump and they can um, use it however they want. It's so much more about how much I can learn from what they're doing and where they are in their scaling journey and how it will augment my knowledge and make me better. So I'm very selfish in those selections. And even if there is a company that I see that I can help a lot, but there is very little learning opportunity for me, um, I shy away from it because I also want to optimize for myself um, and my long-term success. How good is your picker? Like how often do you do those workshops and walk away thinking, oh, this probably isn't the right one for us? Not very good. I would say I walk away from probably 70 to 80% of workshops saying this is not a good match. And um, you can look at it one way as a failure. However, there's a lot of good positives out of those workshops because A, during the workshop, I get to learn something too. Uh, and it's fascinating to me. I get to learn how the company operates and the problems that they have. So it augments my, um, my pattern matching. But then also it creates a fantastic word of mouth loop for me, even though I might not go in with the company and uh, do advising for them, they refer me to other companies because they even receive value out of workshop that I've had for them. So they start referring me, which creates my top of the funnel for me as an advisor and, and as an independent contractor. And third of all, it continues uh, getting better for me in terms of my match rate. So I would say that three years ago when I started, it was, um, I was expecting closer to 60% of them. And then those advising contracts ended up being only like three months long. And that's a failure point for me as well, because I want to see initiatives through. So to me, minimum engagement should be six months to a year. So I can see some of the full cycles of things working out or not. So I actually increased my failure rate 
to 70 to 80% because I want to reduce number of contracts that I have that are only short term. But at the same time, um, I have a fewer workshops too that I engage with. So I started creating additional monetization motions to say, listen, this is just going to be a workshop and you're going to pay for this workshop and there's not going to be any conversations afterwards about advising. And that's okay. Or maybe company just wants presentation about growth and I will just deliver that and there's no advising expectations. So I really started developing that pricing page for myself. It's not just an advisor. It's not just interim. Now it's, I can deliver a presentation to you. Now I can do paid workshop with you. Now I can do Q&A with your company. So it's um, becoming to be more diversified set of ways that businesses can interact with me and I can monetize on. Okay. I like it. So now you have been doing this for several years um, and it seems, at least from the outside, that you're having a lot of success. Uh, it seems like you have crafted, um, hopefully a lifestyle, uh, including your career that feels more secure than that first three month stint that you did after survey monkey. Um, what do you wish you would have known sooner? Like, is there something that, you know, you think back and think, gosh, if I could have known this at this point, you know, things would have been easier. Things would have gone differently. I would have gotten to where I am faster. Like, you know, what lesson do you have, if any? When that was early in my career, all I wanted to be is an executive or CEO of the company. Why? Those people seem to have the biggest impact on the business, on people around them. There's also some financial upside that came with it as well. And I wanted to be more financially independent as well as opposed to living paycheck to paycheck. And it seemed like the only road to take to those outcomes. So I've optimized my career to get to that leadership level as fast as possible. And it seemed glamorous from outside of the title that you get, the team that you get. You can do your whatever you want to an extent uh, and the impact and how people look up to you. I, I wanted to be that good influence for the people and for the business. But when I got to leadership, it was very different versus what I thought it was going to be. There's a huge dark side to leadership, which folds into two pieces. Number one, what you do as a leader versus what you did as an IC while getting to leadership are completely different things. And why you were successful as an IC is not going to be why you're going to be successful as a leader. In fact, those are often mutually exclusive. So you need to retrain yourself. So if you think that you're going to just continuously bank on your superpowers that you had as an IC by getting to leadership, I was wrong with that assumption, and you're probably going to be wrong as well. And number two, what actually happens on day-to-day -day as a leader is nothing glorious. You're in meetings all day long. You're solving people problems. You're dealing with politics on hourly basis across other leaders, across other team members. You're doing PL and budgets and forecasting and strategy sessions and planning. You're not doing any actual work. 
In fact, you separate so far away from work that you have to delegate all of the decisions to your team because you have no inputs. You have no actual data points to make decisions anymore. You're so high level. And that level of separation was exciting for a short bit for me. But then I'm like, I miss actual work. I, I miss doing growth experiments. I miss being in the data. I miss talking to customers a lot and figuring out their problems. And plus, I see so many people get to leadership, which by the way, almost mandatorily comes with management. And people management is a full-time job within itself because you need to mentor them. You're only as good as your team. Your success becomes nothing unless your team succeeds. And all of those pieces, as good that they are to learn, are really not for everybody to succeed in. And as good as I was able to be within them, I think, they're also not my superpowers. My superpower that I define as something that I'm not only really good at, but I really love doing at the same time. And leadership is something that I can be good at given the success that I can have in the company and the impact that I can drive, but do I really love it? That's questionable. And advising an interim level engagement provided me with the ability to still drive that impact and financial stability without the pieces of leadership that I was not necessarily loving to do. And that was eye-opening for me because what I thought I wanted to be when I was growing up in my career, it turned out to be not what I actually want to be in the long term. And that self-realization took me a really long time to complete. And what I wish I knew when I was younger and what I wish that somebody would have told me that A, path to success is not a singular lane road. It's not just one full-time leadership, VP, SVP role, and that's it, chief or whatever. There are other ways that you can monetize your career and be extremely impactful and be extremely successful and loving it. And second of all, that I should less rely on market expectation of what I think market expects of me to do and how I should be, uh, how I should be successful and more rely on what makes me happy and have market adjust to that. And the moment I started relying and focusing myself on what makes me happy and doing that, even though it was terrifying that I thought that market is going to fall behind and box me out, it actually the opposite happened. Market embraced me and now more people look up to me as opposed to what I actually thought was going to happen is uh, I was going to get lost and nobody, like I, will, like I will not be able to be as impactful as I was in a full-time role. And that turned out to be completely false. It's very inspiring. Um, you were saying earlier that you have two kids and I was telling you in our prep that um, my friend who works at Upwork had still uh, shared a stat with me last week that by 2027, 50.9% of the total U.S. workforce is expected to be a freelancer um, or be freelancing. What do you hope life is like for your kids? Like, what do you want your kids to learn from the way that you've crafted your career? We didn't prep for this, but I was thinking about it as you were talking. Like, what do you hope they take away from what you've done? I hope they look at their career as a service. What there is multiple modes to engage with the market and you have more power 
in dictating those modes than you think. You are told there's only one package that is available for you, which is full-time role. I hope we standardize that there's other plans that you can also offer, such as advising, freelancing, uh, whatever it is that you can still monetize. Uh, that does not have to be just your pure pastime hobby. And that it's normalized that we don't all just shoot for this pseudo leadership role. And if we don't get there, we feel like a failure, even though maybe a lot of us shouldn't be even shooting for it. A lot of us should just be very principal ICs without any management, without leadership and making bigger impact than we would ever made in leadership. And that we would stop glorifying people that are on leadership level so much. Just because you have an SVP title does not mean you're the smartest person in the room. And just because somebody did not get to SVP does not mean that they cannot drive more impact for you. So just remove this singularity, like a binary almost decision of like you either not working or you're working full time and create more optionality for people. And this is really my, my biggest revelation is that I thought that I wanted to get to leadership. What I needed to get is optionality. So for all of you listening, whatever your career dreams are, you should really be optimizing for options in your career, not any single specific final destination or a title. Mic joke, that is good. Okay, we are at my favorite part of the show, Alina, um, where I'm going to ask you, uh, and I already hope you're gonna talk about Chris because you told me about this in the lead up and it sounds amazing. But um, if you, if there is a world, um, excuse me, if there is a museum dedicated to the rightness and certain products, what should be in that museum from your perspective and why? I'll give you my three favorite products. So product number one that should be in that museum is Nero or Beam. Why? We are trained as people to think in a sequential linear matter. And Miro allows multidimensional brainstorming and brain mapping and visualization. And to me, it unlocked my ability to create frameworks and to think about problems strategically. The moment I stopped being put in the constraints of a linear document and when it was an open board. Uh, I, to me, it was transformational. Like I, it's, it's, it amplified of how I actually think about things of how I, how I do everything. So I'm, I'm a huge, I, I know I worked for them, uh, and I'm still a huge fan and I use it every single day That's product number one, because, because it transformed and it made me better as a professional problem. Product number two is book W H O O P. And it's the little band that I wear on my hand. And it tracks my heart rate and it gives me my recovery rate, my sleep efficiency, and it measures my strain. And because uh, healthy body equals healthy mind, so you need to invest into your physical activity quite a bit. And it's helped me optimize my exercise routine. So it actually made me understand my body better and be healthier person. So one is professional made me better. The other one is uh, personally, it made me better because now I can understand what my body needs and when I can push myself versus I should stay back and uh, take a rest day. And that was information that I never could calibrate before uh, in my mind uh, with how my body was feeling. And then the last one um, is crisp. Uh, 
So, so Chris with Noise Gasoline Software, I work from home all the time. I have two kids that often come home from school way too early on their early dismissal days. I have a dog, I have two cats, and my husband works at home as well. Noise is all around me. And what it allowed me to have is not to have anybody hear that noise because it trains on my voice and it eliminates everything else. So I can be clapping, I can be having dog barking next to me, and I can still have a professional conversation. And that is just a power unlock of my environment. That is my office and it's professional regardless of where I am, which um, just creates more options for me or where I can work from, which is uh, so amazing. And I advice for them as well. I no longer am, but I still love the product and I use it every single meeting that I have. I was telling you that's going to be my Christmas gift for my team. It sounds amazing. Everyone works from home these days. And like you said, I mean, it gives you more options and more, more control. So that's amazing. Well, Elena, this has been such a wonderful chat. Thank you for joining us. We loved hearing your story. If people want to go uh, see all of your creative endeavors, including your poems and your memes and your frameworks, where should they go see you? Uh, I'm on my site, elenaverna.com. Uh, check it out. Um, I post most of the interesting stuff there, as well as LinkedIn. Um, I post on LinkedIn a lot. So if you want to see hot off the press stuff that I notice and the patterns that I see, uh, follow me there. Fantastic. Thanks for joining. Thanks for listening to the podcast, guys. Be sure to share the word of product-led growth far and wide and let your colleagues, friends, family, neighbors, and anyone you think who would like to know that there's a kick-ass product podcast on offer from the Product-Led Alliance. If you haven't already, don't forget to sign up to the Slack community and check out all our other great content, upcoming events, and other ways to get involved at productledalliance.com. And let's come back again next time to talk more about the head, the heart of product.